Support for this podcast is provided by Paradox, the conversational AI company helping global talent acquisition teams at Unilever, McDonald's and CVS Health get recruiting work done faster. Let's face it, talent acquisition is full of boring administrative tasks that drag the hiring process down and create frustrating experiences for everyone. Paradox's AI assistant, Olivia, is shaking up that paradigm, automating things like applicant screening, interview scheduling, and candidate Q&A, so recruiters can spend more time with people, not software. Curious how Olivia can work for your team? Then visit paradox.ai to learn more. There's been more of scientific discovery more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 449 of the Recruiting Future podcast. I know that many of you who listen to this podcast are very aware of the quality of your employee experience and the importance of your employer brand reputation. However, as the balance in the workforce between permanent hires, contractors and project-based workers evolves, do you still truly understand all the factors that influence your employer brand? My guest this week is Tanya de Grunwald journalist and founder of the Good and Fair Employers Club. Tanya is a long-time campaigner for the rights of young people in the workplace and has been recently working tirelessly to expose the use of exit or training fees by some IT outsourcing companies. This interview is an absolute must-listen for everyone working for an organisation that contracts in workers from external providers. Hi, it's my absolute pleasure to be talking to Tanya de Grunwald, joint journalist and author and founder of the Graduate Careers blog, Graduate Fog. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Perhaps we could start by you just doing a quick introduction to, to you and your work. Oh, thank you so much for having, having me on, um, Matt. It's, um, it's really good to be here talking about all the, the work I've been doing lately. So yeah, so um, I run a website called Graduate Fog, which um, until recently was um, best known for naming and shaming people that have unpaid interns. So um, in the past, I named and shamed Tony Blair and Simon McCowell and Philip Green, which was loads of fun. So that was kind of what I was best known for. Um, and that was started in kind of 2010. And so the campaigning element has really run through most of most of my work. I was a journalist before then as well, writing for um, women's magazines mainly. But now I'm working within the youth job space, but really on the side of young people. So basically campaigning for good jobs for young people. Fantastic stuff. And you do some you do some amazing work. We've known each other for a long time and it's yeah. been really interesting to track the different issues that you've taken up and the, you know, some of the great content that you've produced. Your most recent campaign has been about exit fees and it's something that hit the national press in the in, in the uk and the main reason that that i wanted to kind of have you on the show to talk about it basically just to start at the very very beginning for people listening who might not be aware what are exit fees and what's been going on pretty much four years ago um i started getting emails from graduates who were saying to me that they were stuck in their roles and they were really distressed and they wanted to leave but they couldn't because they had to pay these massive fees if they left in less than two years. And I said, well, how much? And typically it was 15 to 20,000 pounds. And I was like, hang on a minute, what? You, you have to pay 15 to 20 grand 
to leave your graduate job. This is the first job we've had after, after university. And they said, yes. And I said, well, why? And they said, oh, well, um, it's a sort of training repayment fee. So we've been trained for a few months in, uh, these are all many, many IT companies, IT outsourcing firms. We've been trained. And so the, the training was free when we did it. Um, but if we leave in less than two years, then the company said that they want to be reimbursed for, for that money. So I was like, okay, well, what's the what's the, the training? And I just couldn't see how what they were describing could possibly match the scale of the fees they're being asked to pay. So it was typically up to three months of training. And it seemed to be really, really poor quality from what they were describing. It was quite disturbing, some of it, because it was lots of them were really, really distressed. They were talking about an impact on their physical health and their mental health. And they seemed very, very vulnerable to me. And, I, and I'm and i now 42, and I've been working in this area for a long time. I've been working with unpaid interns for a long time who also seemed vulnerable, but they didn't seem quite as distressed. And and I, I really felt quite uncomfortable with the level of distress they were reporting. There was one actually who was talking about, you know, wanting to have a breakdown in the hope that he might be let off these fees on kind of compassionate grounds. And I thought, oh my God, how how is this happening? This does not seem right. So basically, um, I noticed quite quickly that they were mainly ethnic minority, disproportionately, not all, and mainly from lower socioeconomic groups. So it wasn't quite clear to me how that, why that was relevant. It became clearer later on. But they basically didn't have a parent to advise them and they had no funding for legal advice. And so they were coming to me, um, having seen the work that I'd done on unpaid internships and things like that. And then the word was kind of spreading that I was interested in this space. So I started working with a couple of lawyers, one of which is Jolien Maugham, who you may know who's always taking on the government in the UK. There's another chap called Simon Cheatham, which is a fabulous name for a lawyer. So they're both QCs and they very kindly advised me on this stuff for the next sort of three years or so. And and within the UK, I know it's different, there's different um, sort of employment law around the country, but within the UK, it seems that these these fees are not actually illegal in the UK in that they're not there's no law actually banning them. But but both of them said, hang on a minute, these are actually very, very open to being challenged once it gets to court on various grounds. So um, not to get too technical. But but the problem was, of course, that these cases weren't getting to court because very few gra- graduates were taking the risk of leaving because they knew that if they did leave and the ones who, who were leaving were seeing this, they were being chased very aggressively for the fees. So it's a horrible position to be in. Most of them were just staying put and just waiting it out. There were disturbing things going on within that, which is that some of them were being either bullied or harassed or whatever by the clients who they were placed with because these are all um, IT outsourcing firms who would place the graduates within big companies and not necessarily big companies, but all companies. And and the graduates themselves were in a position where they had very, very little support. One of the few female graduates I encountered said that she was being sexually harassed by, by a manager and she basically couldn't leave her job. And I thought, how have we got a situation where people can't leave their job? Like your final card, no matter how bad your job is anywhere ever, is that you can leave, right? And the minute that's taken away from you, it's a whole very dark situation. So that so that's kind of where we got to. So we got stuck with the legal aspect of it. So then, so that um, about this time last year, I started a, a campaign called Stop Exit Fees Now, which has continued, and I've had a lot of success recently, which is probably what you've seen. Absolutely, and I I really want to kind of talk about that, and I've got questions about exactly about what's going on with these exit fees because I've, I've got a feeling that 
lots of people listening might not be aware of this. We've got lots of people listening from lots of different countries, but I think the issues raised here are relevant across lots of different geographies. Before we dive into it, I just want to give people an extra bit of context about you and your work, because you, you mentioned the Unpaid Internship campaign that you run for many years, taking on some of the, the biggest names in, in British industry. Tell us a little bit more about that and how perhaps some of the learnings from that helped you form this campaign that we'll go and talk about in a bit more detail. Yeah, um, it certainly did. I mean, um, I started Graduate Fog in 2010 with really, I thought it was going to be a careers advice website. I'd written a book about careers and I thought that was what it was going to be. But actually, the unpaid internship stuff took off really, really quickly. And, and the way I was doing it was um, basically getting in touch with people who I'd found out had unpaid interns because those interns had come to me or people had seen an advert for, for an unpaid internship with a very big firm or with a very famous person because at that time they were being advertised very openly. And within the UK, and I think it's the same around the world, actually, this that, that unpaid internships around that time were considered much more like, oh, well, you know, it's a bit of a grey area. You know, it's great for them to get some experience and, you know, everyone gets something out of it. And so there was very much a kind of naivety around the conversation. And I, I basically had a huge amount of arguments with people around that time, to be honest, Matt, with, um, you know, of various parties and things with people telling me, no, it was fine, particularly people who worked in fashion and politics. Well, that's how I got in and you know, that's how I got into media and all this. So there was a lot of kind of feeling around that. And I really broke that down and said, hang on a minute, it's not fair. And, and even if you don't believe you're exploiting the person that's working for free, you are still excluding all the people that can't afford to work for free. And actually, that second piece is really what came to the fore within the next kind of five years or so, because of course, as we know now, it became much clearer that it was part of a much bigger, wider conversation about diversity and social mobility. And unpaid internships are one part of that. So that became clear in the context. So I could see that exit fees were, again, a similar sort of thing in that in that way. Um, what I'd also learned, quite frankly, from um, unpaid internships was how ill-prepared press departments are to being asked questions about, hey, what are you doing? This doesn't seem right. And how often the person who sends you a response on behalf of a huge company or a very famous person was a very casual, you know, oh, well, don't know what you're making such a fuss about, Tanya. And because I'm not like a world famous campaign, I'm not Michael Moore, um, you know, people sort of dismissed me and I kind of let them do that. And then what happened was that I would then um, post about this on Graduate Fog, you know, we, we saw this advert, we didn't think this looked right. And then this is what we wrote to them. And then this is what they wrote back. And I would basically publish the whole thing. And, it, and it's quite a long blog post, but hey, it's my blog, I can write whatever I want on it. There's no, there's no um, word length, you know, limit. So, so people would just read the whole thing. So again, with exit fees, I did the same thing of actually being, I mean, it's confrontational. And I guess, some people would think I'm just a real nightmare, but I just will not let this go. I think it's really important and no one else will do it. And I do it for free. Um, I do have another income as well, thank God now, but at the time I didn't. But I don't think press offices and I don't think big companies understand the energy that activists have and how we can be an absolute pain in the neck. And the more you tell us to go away, the more we are going to cause more and more trouble for you so I think there are learnings in that as well and actually it's just a kind of David and Goliath story which people love I mean it's not necessarily me who's David it's the graduates who are David but I am fighting on their behalf and I'm their representative and I just keep slinging these, these little stones at these big companies and actually they don't know what kind of support I have and people who follow me on Twitter who are very 
helpful to me who retweets stuff, for example. Things can go massive very, very quickly, hence the press coverage that you've seen. And I suppose coming back to that, coming back to the the XFE campaign. So to clarify, these are companies predominantly in the out in the IT sector. They're employing graduates. They're giving them um, very short periods of training. They're then saying that if they want to leave before a certain time, they have to pay pay them a huge amount of money. But they're then placing these graduates in other organisations kind of also embedding them in that in that organization so it's quite a complicated quite a complicated setup lots of companies involved maybe some of them un- unwittingly tell us tell us about the campaign tell us tell us what you found tell us what happened so yes yeah, so you're right they have i mean these graduates are basically put on placements with big companies so no one's heard of their actual employer typically well we have fdm being the biggest but they they will send out these graduates on placements to bigger firms that people have heard of. So, so some of the clients of some of the firms include um, AstraZeneca, Department for Work and Pensions, BP, Sky, HSBC are one of FDM's biggest, biggest clients. So they send them out to work on client projects. So these people are actually typically working on the premises of these clients. They're working on projects that are confidential to those, to those clients. And yet... There seems to be some confusion about the status of these people. They are bought in kind of as a service. I know, yuck, right? Um, they're sort of, they're not really people. They're kind of like bought. They're a bought service, which grosses me out completely. But that's kind of how they're considered. And they're bought in. And, and, what, and what their actual employer will do is to promise the client that you can have these actual graduates for two years. Right? They're not going anywhere. The, you can have these 10 people, these 50 people, these 100 people for two years. Right. At which point, I think any any client who's got their brain switched on should say, how on earth can you possibly guarantee that? Right. Mm. So I don't I, I still haven't quite got to the bottom of that. Are, were they asking those questions or were they just turning a blind eye? I don't know. I still don't know the answer to that question. I've got some ideas about some of the clients. But basically, that that kind of allowed the, the, the employer, um, who, who I'll call the exit fees firm, to basically have this massive ability to to send out these clients these um young graduates and just basically kind of farm them out effectively and not be that bothered about where they ended up now lots of those clients are really nice companies and they're great places to work and some of those graduates are very happy there but others were not and those are the ones who i'm interested in so people have have sometimes said to me oh you need to be more balanced tanya why are you more balanced well i'm not balanced because i'm the person that gets the 2am emails from the ones who this is not working for that's why i'm not balanced and yes i am angry about this and i'm going to say so mm. talk us about the talk us through the talk us through the campaign so you, you you took the legal advice you started the campaign how did the campaign run well initially what i'd hoped to do was was to identify the clients some of which I had pre-existing relationships with through my other work. Um, I run a um, a good and fair employers club, which is a a club for good employers of young people. And they all, they meet up once a month. And so I've got relationships with the early careers people within these companies. And so I sort of thought, well, I know they're going, doing good stuff themselves on their early career stuff. I know they are. So I'm sure that if I just say to them, oh, do you know, by the way, can you tell your IT guys that you're using this horrible firm and this is how they're operating? Could you just tell them that? And if they and ask them to drop that that supplier, ask them to replace them with someone who doesn't charge exit fees. Exit fees don't seem to fit with any of your 
as this huge brand, whoever it is. They don't seem to fit with your values. You're doing loads of great stuff on diversity and social mobility. You know, you supported Black Lives Matter and Pride and all this other stuff that we all do now. So I just sort of thought naively now, they just say, oh my God, this is so terrible. Thank you so much, Tanya. Um, You know, we had no idea. You know, we'll certainly look at this. And I thought they might even grab it as an opportunity to do do something useful. And that could actually present themselves in a really positive way to young people saying, this is is how we're helping in a really practical way. I'm asking them to do something very specific, very practical. They just didn't do it, Matt. (laughs) They just didn't do it. So I just thought, what the hell? So that was really disappointing. And, and actually, to be honest, the, the campaign was originally called Stop Exit Fees by Xmas because I was that confident that it was going to happen. Um, I started it in August. And of course, by Xmas, I was nowhere close to it because I didn't get the support that I thought I would get. So basically, at that point, I had to do it the hard way, the hard way for them and the hard way for me, which is to write to them all officially, write to their press offices and say, you're working with this company. This is how this company operates. What's your position? And then I basically called them out on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn has been my friend during this. LinkedIn has allowed me to have a platform where I'm talking to the industry about this stuff. Um, and I'm saying, guys, we need to do better than this. This is happening under our noses. This company and this company and this company are doing this. These companies are their clients. And I would tag them all in. Now, <laughs> you know, anyone that uses LinkedIn will probably, you know, particularly within our space, we'll know that people are generally, I mean, some people are a bit out there, but mostly it's quite polite stuff. Whereas I'm actually doing proper activism on what is usually quite a dull website platform, right? So people are like, oh my God, I can't believe Tanya's actually tagging them. And so I was tagging in FTM and Kubrick and Sparta and QA and all the other firms that were doing it. Three of them aren't still, one of them still is. So, so it was like really fun actually. And that's activism and it's in your face. Um, and I was doing it, I was doing it, I was the right side of the law. I was polite. I wasn't sweary, but I was saying, guys, this is happening under our noses. We cannot allow this to happen. Why are we as an industry turning a blind eye to this? This is not right. And we know it, what's happening. And I just wouldn't let it go. What's been the outcome of all that, of all that work, of all that publicity? You know, as I said at the beginning, you know, I've seen the the articles that you've that you've generated in in things like the FT and, and other publications. What what's been the what's been the outcome of that approach? It's been pretty ugly, to be honest, Matt. <laughs> it's been ugly. There've been moments when it has been pretty nasty. Um, and and at one point, I seem to have uncovered a situation where one of these firms was telling one of at least one of their clients that they dropped exit fees. But I knew that firm had not told the graduates that. So it seemed like there was at least, let's put this politely, some inconsistency in the messaging going on there. So, so you know, and I've seen a lot of emails between people that, uh, you know, anyway, I've seen a lot of stuff. So, but I think um, I've actually pulled out kind of some some learnings that from what I've what I've discovered, which I think might be helpful for your listeners as well. So I think the, f- the first point is around procurement and supplier management. I would say, what I've seen is that there's a lot more work to be done when um, when onboarding new suppliers, because if these companies are getting through who operate like this, then then to me it's quite clear that the right questions are not being asked when these when these firms are taken on as suppliers. So there's something around that: Are you asking enough questions about do you use exit fees? Do you need a specific question about do you use exit fees? Sometimes there's something quite vague in there about like um, you know, do you do anything that, that might bring us into disrepute? Well, that's a bit of an iffy question, isn't it? So you could easily just go, no, of course we don't. Um, so I think they need to be more robust on the questioning there. There's also, 
and this seems to be almost a bigger problem. There's a problem with being able to ditch bad suppliers, particularly when they are really embedded within your business. So companies seem to make rather vague claims like, oh, you know, our supplier relationships are under constant review. But actually, when you raise it as an issue, it feels like I'm asking them to take the eggs out of the cake because these, these, these young people are so embedded in their business in a, in a project, a big tech project, which they're halfway through. They've got 50 of these grads. They can't get rid of these. They How are they going to extract these grads, replace them with grads from a different firm? So it's just all way too, imbe- too embedded and too enmeshed. I mean, you know, that's a difficult problem. It's not my problem to solve. I'm drawing attention to it. That's my job. But I think it's the job of these bigger companies to think, actually, should we ever be so embedded with a supplier that we can't get rid of them? I mean, that seems to be like quite a basic question to me, um, because issues like this are going to arise with suppliers more and more. It's all, you know, there's all the supply chain stuff. It's just, you know, this is only one example. So I think there's a there's questions around suppliers. And I think just to add there that, that so many organizations are talking about their their own social responsibility, the, uh, you know. Oh, the, yeah, they the, love it. They, <laughs> they put forward as an organization and how the, the, you know, their suppliers are a big, are a big part of that. And it, you know, perhaps this indicates that practically things that are happening do not necessarily correspond with the messages that are being put out there. Yeah, I think that's two, there's two ways in which that's true. So my second point was about double standards, which I think you're right in that in that huge brands don't seem to have worked out yet how responsible they are for what happens with their suppliers. So they seem to be, have worked out that they are they have some responsibility because, as you say, sort of within supply chains, you know, there are questions about slave labor. I'm an employee, a supplier to lots of these firms, and I get asked whether I, you know, modern slavery, and you get asked those questions. So they are there is. There is an acknowledgement that they have some responsibility here. The problem here is when you're talking about people who are being bought in but are not employees. So they're in this sort of grey area that they're, they're sort of considered contractors and they're not kind of in one one group or the other. So I mean, I hear them. You know, it's, we're talking about people. We're talking about young people, particularly vulnerable people. And I think clients need to decide, particularly when you've got. These are people who are not in far-flung countries, even though we say we are responsible for the far-flung countries as well. But this is even more compelling because these people are on your premises right now. They're having lunch in your canteen. They're going to your Christmas party. They're going for drinks with your team on a Friday night at the pub. These are your people under your roof, and you're saying you're not responsible for them, or are you? Because because lots of the firms said, oh, well, that you know they're just a third-party supplier. We don't have anything to do with the details of their contracts. Exactly, and again, interestingly, because I think the uh, a lot of the, the the TA leaders and the the HR leaders who are who are listening, you know, are having to look much more holistically about what talent means to their business, and that's not just full time employees; that's people in contract employees, project employees, outsourced employees, all those kind of things. And how do you have consistent values and employee experience for for your entire workforce, however that workforce is made up? And I think. That to me is a really interesting aspect of that, that it that it really identifies perhaps how far organizations have to go to truly achieve that level of thinking at a practical yeah. level. And also worth making the point that if your brand is much bigger and much sexier than their actual employer, they will probably go around telling that their friends they telling their friends they work for you and not for their yep. employer. Absolutely. So this is actually coming back on you, even whether you know it or not. 
Absolutely. What were the other What were the other learnings that you got from this? So to come around, you know, you mentioned about. So we talked about suppliers already. There's a whole issue around diversity with this, um, which is quite complicated. But as as we've all seen, most most big employers have figured out they need to do better on diversity, and lots of them are doing better on diversity. But I think what a campaign like this exposes, in a way, and I'm you know I'm from a very middle class comfortable background I white myself so I, I'm not going to say I'm a um, diversity campaigner uh, I host a lot of conversations for people from various different groups but that's not that's not really what I am but I think what I have done in doing this work is exposing yet another example of how how there is discrimination within within the ways that these structures are working and who they're working for so there's a whole there's clearly a gap here between what these brands are saying and what they actually do and and as I said I gave them a, I gave them a very I thought quite easy task okay it wasn't that easy in the end but I gave them a task to do that would show how much they care about this stuff and they all fluffed it so actually Christie's the auction house who are like one of the oldest uh, auction houses in the world, they may be the oldest, were the only people who came back to me and said, oh my God, Tanya, we had no idea. This is awful. We used to work with one of these companies and we never will again. Please make sure people know that. I thought, oh my God, how is it that Christie's Auction House, which clearly have other issues to do with diversity, uh, you know, I'm not going to say they're perfect on everything, but how is it that their press office person went, oh, this sounds awful, let's distance ourselves. And yet huge banks... <laughs> are not are not smart enough to do that so there's so there's something there and i think and i think also i think presenting yourself as a champion of of social mobility um you know having black lives matter um all over your social media you know pride all this kind of stuff it doesn't mean anything if you don't come through if you can't get your act together to to be reactive like this actually channel four even weren't that great i thought channel four would be all over this I mean, I had to drag them into that. I really did. And then they eventually said, okay, we won't work with Sparta again, which was great. But I mean, it was hard work. And I thought, God, this is Channel 4. Anyway, I love Channel 4, but that was not their finest moment. So so I guess there's that, there's that whole, there's, you know, I mean, diversity is a massive issue in itself. And I'm sure you've done lots of podcasts on that separately, but this is certainly a, an example of that not working. So point number four is that whistleblowing is broken we're talking about 4,000 graduates per year have been stuck on these on these contracts. And this has been going on for years and years and years. So this is a big, big thing. This is a, and that's only in the UK, right? So this has been happening on a huge scale. So if all of those young people have had, oh, I don't know, between one and four or five managers during the time they've been working under those, those contracts, it's likely that 10,000 more managers will have been aware within the client companies will have been aware that these grads are not free to leave their jobs. Now, even if a small proportion of those people flagged it to their manager going, did you know that actually this company that we use, FDM or Sparta or Kubrick or whoever it was, do you know that the grads that we're hiring in aren't free to leave? This doesn't feel very us. Do you think we should look into this? This feels a bit gross. Is it just me? Like if those questions, those conversations did happen, right? Some of them did happen. And what I've heard is that um, some of those people were told, yeah, I know, I know, we're not mad about it, but, you know, we've used this company for a long time and really, you know, we've got really senior links. You know, the boss's 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 boss knows the boss of that company, so we're never going to ditch them. This supplier relationship is just too long-standing and too embedded to ever be dumped. 
So there's a whistleblowing issue there, which I think is also kind of creepy. So concerns that more junior people are not listened to um, or kind of told to be quiet. Again, not specifically for any particular company, but I know that that has been happening. Yeah. One more point, number five, which is absolute disaster from the uh, press offices. What on earth is going on? I've heard the most bizarre responses when I've said, you're using this supplier. It's pretty weird. doesn't fit with your values. What the hell? And they've gone, uh, yeah, nothing to do with us. And that's the, like their official statement. I mean, do you really want that to be your official statement? Oh, it's got nothing to do with us. After I've put forward some really serious stuff about, you know, mental health, physical health, the impact of this on young people. Some of them were, were being separated um, from their families because lots of these firms have, have something called a geoflex policy, which means the grads have to go and work anywhere around the country. So on top of them not being allowed to leave, they might be in the middle of nowhere, miles from their family, miles from their own children sometimes, young children, um, miles from their mother who's having cancer treatment. Um, so this is really serious stuff. And, they, and they, yet the, the firms, the client firms go, oh, yeah, it's not really, yeah, it's not really up to us. You should probably ask them directly. It's nothing to do with us. And I'm going, no, it is to do with you. And of course, the clients have the power. And that's what I always said. And it turned out to be true. I hoped they would use their power for good. In the end, I had to shame them into it, which is disappointing. And what I really hope is that we can learn something from this. I'm not a total pain. I'm actually a nice person, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> you are. I've known you for I've known you for a very long time, and you, oh, you thank are a you. very yes. nice person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I am, but I've got a bee in my bonnet, and I won't let it go. And I'm not actually a confrontational person, but if I if I believe in something, and I also know that no one else is going to do this work if I don't do it. Um, one of the things I really want to do as a result of this um, is to set up um, a fair work ombudsman. Um, which I think we should have here. We have other other types of ombudsmen here. We have property ombudsmen and all sorts of other stuff. We need a fair work ombudsman because at the moment, if you've got a problem with your employer, the only route is legal action. And if you can't afford lawyers, you can't get anywhere and you're basically stuck. So the whole the whole process, all of the burden is all on on the employee, which is bad enough when you're somebody older and you've got some cash behind you. It's stressful. If you've ever been through something stressful like that with your employer, it's horrible, let alone if you're 21 and you've got no money. Um, so we really need a much better way. I can't do this forever. I have people getting in touch with me all the time. And I had someone last night, you know, at kind of 2am, I got an email, um, which I picked up this morning from somebody in a complete state about his horrible employer you know, I'm not paid to do this. You know, <laughs> I run a club for good employers of young people. I love doing it. And I, that's my work. I'm not, you know, why is this falling to me? There's a whole load of people who should be doing this stuff. Of course, I got in touch with all these people. I was in touch with um, the Social Mobility Commission, Social Mobility Foundation, Training Standards, the Financial Conduct Authority, all these people, all these people. And they all said, mm, it's not really us. It's not really us. Well, well and, I, and I'm the only person that says... All right, I'll take it. I'll do that. Put my hand up, but well, I do it unpaid. So something's wrong there. Absolutely, totally. And and on behalf of um, you know everyone in talent acquisition and HR, thank you so much for the for the for the work that you do and the work that you do for for for, for young people and, and and their careers and really kind of highlighting this. As a final question, tell us a bit more about the Good Employers Club. Tell us a bit more about your your actual job and and what you do and how people can find out find out more and connect with you. Okay, so it's really unusual in that, look, I'm not an HR person, I'm not a talent acquisition person, I'm a journalist who, who's a campaigner, and I know this space inside out from the graduates, the young people's perspective. What I wanted to do was when 
um, actually brilliant companies then started coming to, to me while I was running Graduate Fog uh, for years and years with no business model. And these great companies, and actually EY were the first who came to me and said, you know, we love what you're doing. How can we get involved? We think we're doing good stuff. We want to do more. And then more and more companies would come to me, um, always the early careers people. And I would say, are you guys talking to each other? And they weren't talking to their counterparts at other big employers. So I thought, what would what would happen if if we had a club where they could all meet up? And I launched um, what was then called the Graduate Fog Employers Club, since rebranded the Good and Fair Employers Club. See, we kept the G and the F. But actually, we, we were talking about apprentices right from the start. So graduate didn't really work. So the Good and Fair Employers Club then started as a club where we would meet once a quarter in person and and all the all the um you know heads of early careers would all talk to each other and they would just share really 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 openly they would share their successes but they would also share their challenges and frankly their disasters um, and we'd all have a sort of kind of group hug if you like and just be like oh my god this is awful I've got this problem someone else saying oh we had that problem and this is how we fixed it so it's really kind of challenges and solutions kind of sharing that um, and then actually in COVID. Obviously, we couldn't do the in-person stuff anymore. So we went from doing quarterly in-person sessions to doing monthly Zoom calls, which people said was basically a lifeline because everyone was in such a state at that time. And they're all trying to plan. I mean, planning is such a huge part of what early careers people do. And they suddenly had to just throw all their plans in the air and just completely start again. So so the club really came together during the pandemic. And so now we've got um, 13 members, I think. Um, Foxons have just joined. Um, and we've got, you know, Google, Santander, Vodafone, um, EY, Accenture. So loads of great brands who all talk to each other. And I and I host these um, meetings for them um, once a month. And we've just had our our first um, actual lunch uh, in, in Soho in London, which was lovely to get everyone together. So, you know, long may it continue. Just just a really great place for people to, to share issues like this. And I've, and I've been banging on about exit fees and they know that and they know that I want it. And there's a lot to discuss out of that. But I think it's really shown you know, it's show. I mean, it's, I made it sound like I had no support at all. That's not true. I've just had support from kind of smaller, like little pockets of support, I suppose, rather than having broad corporate support. And I think next time I do this kind of stuff, I hope I won't be doing it on my own, frankly. But if I do, then next time I really hope that big corporates particularly will be better placed to do this in a way that's much more comfortable and much less kind of scrappy and stressful because it doesn't need to be this way if they just listen to me in the first place. <laughs> Tanya, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. My thanks to Tanya. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list to get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.